Well, thank you, Jerusalem, for uh, honoring me and my family. Uh, it is a pleasure for us to be here, uh, continually amazed by God's goodness and, and just my excitement to be here. This is a dream come true for me, and you have to know that. And uh, so this is right in my strike zone. At least I feel like it is, so hopefully I don't royally mess things up here. But anyway, thank you for, uh, thank you for welcoming us. We really feel that and feel support here, and so thank you. I might be a little off this morning. The planes, I'm recognizing as I get older, airplanes, and I don't really have the best relationship. Um, I just, I was flying in from Detroit late last night, and uh, had a layover, a long layover in Philly, and so when I got home, it was like, something's not right there. So these little planes, you know how it is, but anyway... So we'll get through it, though, but if I'm a little groggy, please forgive me. Ferdinand de Mero, he was a really impressive man. He worked as a civil engineer, doctor of applied psychology, monk, and assistant warden at a Texas prison, philosophy dean at what is now Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania, and lawyer, among other professions. He even served as a surgeon on a Canadian Navy destroyer during the uh, Korean War. But there was a big problem. He did all these things with stolen identities. He was none of these things. They called him the great imposter. Um, When he was a doctor on the Canadian Navy destroyer, several wounded uh, men were brought to him. Some say Demera had a photographic memory, so he holed up in his room with a a medical textbook and amazingly emerged to save each man's life. Even a guy needing major chest surgery. This guy wasn't even a doctor. Time magazine said he was an, quote, audacious, unschooled, but amazingly talented pretender who always wanted to be a somebody and succeeded in being a whole raft of somebody else's. It's easy to do. It's really easy to do. To be someone that you're not. To put on a face. I think we've all done that. I think that's fair to say. But I wonder how many of us are living as spiritual demeras. Hiding behind a faith that is not actually ours. I wonder how many of us feel trapped inside pretense or our own synthetic spiritual life, perhaps fearful to admit to ourselves, maybe fearful to admit to God or anybody else, that we really don't believe. Both a treasure and terror of the gospel is that God knows the real you. For the follower of Jesus, being known by God is a treasure because even though he knows our faults and failures, he still loves us no matter what. His grace covers all of our imperfections. What a treasure to be known by God that way. But for unbelievers, being fully known by God is terrifying because you can't hide anything. The challenge for us today is really simple. Take a good look in the mirror to see if your faith is genuine. Take a good look in the mirror to see if your faith is genuine, if it's real. If you do that honestly, it can open up the door for you for massive spiritual growth, 
for God to do some really exciting things in your life. Demera spent much of his life being someone he was not, and for all those years he missed out on being who he could have been. We all need to take to make sure that fear of facing our own spiritual reality is not holding us back from being all God wants us to be. We have to face the truth. Facades only work with other people. They never work with God. Jesus knows you and everybody else inside and out. He knows us inside and out. In verse 24 and 25, John explains that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Nothing is hidden from God. He knows how we think and feel, when we think and feel, and why we think and feel. We are known. Jesus knows all people and all that is in man, and he does not need to derive knowledge somehow from PhDs or specialists or peer reviews or cutting-edge research. He knows man and what is in man because he's God, because he's the creator and counselor of all things. He knows us inside and out. In other words, you do not confuse Jesus. He's not perplexed at you. You don't throw him curveballs. He doesn't need to run certain tests and read those tests to, to better understand you. Myers-Briggs or the di- disc profiles and things like that it does not help Jesus at all. He already knows what you're like, how you feel, how you think, what you dream of, what you desire most, what you're fearful of, excited about, bored with. Jesus knows everything about you. Now, we confuse ourselves, right? We wish someone was able to just help us understand us. And yet Jesus fully understands everything about us. Do you always know why you do what you do? I don't understand myself all the time. Jesus does. Jesus does. We also get confused about other people. Have you ever been just wondering to yourself, what on earth were they thinking? That makes no sense to anybody. Why would they do that? And we're left confused about people. We can guess at motives, guess at intentions, but we really don't know. We can't know, especially when everyone gets confused about themselves and their motives and intentions. But the point is, Jesus knows. He knows everyone's heart entirely because he knows all people and needs no one to bear witness about man, for he knows what is in man. God's conversation with Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7 is a good example of this. God said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. God is the only one that can see the heart. God is the only one that can do that. We can't. One of the most godly people that I know in my life that I've ever met is my mom, my mother. She is constantly serving Christ and other people. It's the tune of her life. She just happens to whistle, too. She likes to whistle. But that's like the tune of her life. Just serve other people, give myself for other people, make other people happy, selfless woman. Unbelievable heart for Christ 
and for other people. And I have seen in her life that the gospel has taken root and changed the woman. And she's just pleasant uh, because of Jesus in her. It changed the way that she lives. God is using her. She's an amazing, God, uh, amazing woman of God that he has put to good work in many people's lives. Her, her, the ripple effect is just huge from my mom. You get the idea. But, and my mom gave me permission, talk to her about this, to say this. But, though she is a godly woman, though the Holy Spirit is alive and well in her, she still sins. She still has mixed motives at times. She still battles temptation. And I cannot from the outside understand why my mom does what she does. I can look at her and say, look at all that you're doing for people. And inside, she can be doing it for herself. She struggles with that mixed emotions. She would agree with this. And I know much of her life is categorized by selflessness, just unselfish acts of love. But sometimes I know, based on the authority of the Bible, that my mom acts with selfish motives. But I, not, I might not be able to see it. And that is the limitation that we all have. We see outward stuff. We see what we look, look like on the outside, but God sees straight through that and penetrates into the heart of the issue. He sees our heart. He judges the heart. He knows every one of our motives and intentions entirely. He knows us inside and out. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. That is something that only God can do. Jesus knew the heart, the thoughts of the scribes in Matthew 9, 4, and 5. Jesus knew Nathaniel before he ever met Nathaniel in John 1. Peter said of Jesus in John 21, 17, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. The disciples prayed in Acts 1.24. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. Jesus is the only man who knows everything about everybody. He knows. Nothing is a surprise to Jesus. Now, I want you to take some time this week to read over and study Psalm 139. If you need to make a note to yourself, do that, please. Study Psalm 139 and see how well God knows us. Jesus knows us inside and out. And that really is a wonderful thing, and it's a terrifying thing. Being known by God is awesome because every one of us desires to be known, to be understood, to be loved, and to know in return. The Facebook empire is built upon that truth. I want to be known. I want to know. Even though marriage statistics in our culture are embarrassing and bad, people still get married because they long to be known, to share their life with someone else who can know them intimately and still love them regardless of their faults and failures. People relate with hobbies this way, hunting, fishing, sports, clubs, because in that common bond or interest, they share an important part of themselves with those around them, with someone else. They want to be known. They want to be understood. That desire in you should communicate something about your soul, about how God made you. But out of all the relationships you have, no one knows you like Jesus. No one knows you like Jesus. No one is more interested in you than Jesus. 
What you value the most, what you love, what you think, what you worship, what you are displeased with or disappointed in or disgruntled over. Not only does he know every detail about you, he is also zealous that you find your life knowing and treasuring him. His supreme knowledge of all things is part of his supreme value above all things. And with his comprehensive knowledge, he is calling you to come to him, to know him, and find your deepest desires satisfied in him. That is wonderful. Wonderful. Excellent to be known in that way. God knows you completely and has provided a breathtaking way for you to know him, to be in relationship with him. But being known like this can also be terrifying. We cannot hide anything from God. Our lives are an open book. Some things can be hidden from other people, but nothing can be hidden from God. By nature, John 3, 19 and 20 is true of all of us. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, having the exposing light of God placed on your life when all shadows are gone is a terrifying thing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 that when Jesus comes back, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. All of our lives laid bare on judgment day where the purposes of our heart are just put out there. Seen in clear view. That's why you did that. That's why you did that. I don't know about you. That's sobering to think about, very sobering to think about. Whatever our success in hiding things now, the purposes of our heart will one day be completely visible. Now, there is something that eliminates every bit of anxiety in the middle of that reality. All the fear can be gone. A better hope, a confidence that surpasses every one of your iniquities. My sin... Not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's the gospel. We don't need to fear one day having all of our purposes laid bare before God because we have an advocate who represents us before the Father. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the King of the world, and we have nothing to be ashamed about. Because we have his righteousness, and that comes through faith. We are no longer condemned because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing left to condemn because he paid for it all with his life. Through faith in Christ, he removes your terror and replaces it with confidence before the throne of God. With the righteousness of Christ, there is nothing that you cannot face. Nothing that you must cower away in fear. Every motive, intention, thought, desire, dream, goal, everything in our lives is laid bare before the Lord. Does our opinion of our faith, therefore, match God's opinion of it? Jesus knows the imposter's faith. Jesus knows the imposter's faith. In verse 23, many people believed in Jesus when they saw him do incredible signs. You see, supernatural power attracts people. 
But in verse 24, we find out that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Entrust is a play on words that John is using. It's the same root word as believe in verse 23. He did not entrust, he did not believe himself to them because they were untrustworthy. Their faith was illegitimate. He didn't see authentic faith in them. His knowledge of the human heart and their hearts in particular led him to distance themselves from them, not revealing the full nature of his identity. Maybe they believed he was the prophet. Maybe maybe they believed he was the Messiah, but they failed to trust him with their heart with their heart. See, not all faith is saving faith. There is a way to believe in Jesus that displeases Jesus. It's not intellectual, not effectual. It's intellectual, rather, not effectual. It's head, it's not heart. Jesus knows when authentic faith isn't there in us. In John 6, 64, Jesus said directly to his 12 disciples, hand-picked disciples, his ministry team, and he says this, there are some of you who do not believe. And then John adds, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus could see both belief and unbelief in the hearts of his disciples. He knew from the very beginning Nothing surprised him. He knew Judas was an imposter from the very beginning. Judas was along with him through all of his ministry. You see, saving faith is more than being amazed, more than being wowed at Jesus. Saving faith is joyfully surrendering everything to Jesus Christ in obedience. Lots of people are impressed with Jesus. Our culture, to a certain extent, is impressed with Jesus, but few people give their lives for him. And I want you to see imposter's faith. I want you to better understand what being an imposter looks like from Scripture so that this morning and beyond, you can test yourself and test your own faith. This is what the Apostle Paul affectionately wrote to his Christian friends in Corinth. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He's writing to Christians. Study your faith. Make sure it's legit. Make sure you're actually in the family of God. Test yourselves. And he says, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Faith comes in various forms shapes, sizes, but there is only one saving faith, the kind of faith that brings you eternal life with Christ. We want that one, not the other ones, and there's a lot of other ones. We want saving faith. So what is imposter's faith? Imposter's faith in John 2.23 is built upon fascination with the supernatural and not a desperate, humble need for Jesus. Fascinating, awesome He does some really cool stuff, but not, I desperately need this man. I need him in my life. I need him to guide me. I need to treasure him because he's all that I want. It's a faith of the impressed, not a faith of the humble. See the difference? In 2006, in Tucson, Arizona, uh, Kyle Holtrust, an 18-year-old, was hit by a Camaro, and he was pinned underneath. Tim Boyle saw it happen, ran to the scene, and lifted the Camaro 
off Kyle while the driver pulled him from uh, underneath to safety. It's just flat out superhuman strength. It's happened before in other things that you can read uh, from the news. They call it hysterical strength. Outside of studies on adrenaline in science, science can't really explain it. It's, it just is, because you can't really test something like that. It would be totally cruel to like, set someone up. They don't know it's coming. You, he's pinned! And they're like, oh, just kidding. He really wasn't. <laughs> but man, did we get some good research on you. You know, that, not cool. But anyway, so they can't study this, but it's actually there. Superhuman strength does not correspond to divinity. And belief in supernatural, superhuman strength does not correspond to saving faith either. So believing in Jesus simply because, man, his signs are cool, is not saving faith. The belief must go deeper. Imposter's faith shows up in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They call Jesus Lord, They talk to him. They do powerful, incredible things in his name. But something is wrong. Something is off. They don't know him. They never did. They never surrendered their heart to him in joyful obedience. Later on in Matthew 13, 20 and 21, Matthew writes about imposter's faith. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, that faith hears the truth, is excited about it, says yes to truth, and things get hard, life goes on, that gets tested and tried, and through the difficulty it says, nope, not for me, and steps away. See, that's the imposter's faith. There was no root. There was no heart change. There was no Holy Spirit power. It was imposter's faith, and imposter's faith gives up. In John 8, 31, we're told that some Jews believed in Jesus. That's the exact language, believed in him. But a few verses later, he says that those same Jews who believed in him, this is what he tells them, you are of your father the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. Now, why would Jesus tell believers, you're of of Satan? And all you want to do is please Satan with your life. Well, here's how. Because their brand of belief was ineffectual to save. It wasn't saving faith. God graciously gives us saving faith. And when he gives us saving faith, he is adopting us into his family, giving us a new name, giving us new a new will, giving us new desires, and we are changed. We are His. Being truly saved is being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That never happened for those particular Jews. Here's another example of imposter's face. This is unbelievable. 
in Acts 8, 9 through 24, we won't read all of it, but there was a, a powerful magician named Simon who amazed people with his magic. He knew he was great, and so, so did the people, and so he's doing this fantastic stuff, and they're really um, beyond entertained by it. Philip, a Christian, showed up preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people got saved. People are changed. And Acts 8.13 says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we know he's taken with this. We know that he believes. He believes enough that they baptized him. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It sounds good, right? Well, Peter... And John went to Samaria and they prayed and they laid hands on the converts, the recent converts, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Some fantastic stuff is happening at this moment. And Simon is watching this and he wants it. He wants that experience, that power, and he offers to pay for it. And so Peter is like, what? And rebukes Simon the magician, and this is what he says to him. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." Peter's right. That's a fair assessment of where Simon's heart was. Now, what would we expect if Simon was a humble Christian man caught in the middle of sin? We've all been there, right? We're caught, we're had, we've messed up. What would, should have he done if he was a legitimate Christian? Well, every Christian struggles with sin and should do what Peter said. Repent and pray for forgiveness, trusting God. Turn from your sin Go to the throne of grace and receive his grace. What did Simon do? Acts 8.24 tells us. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He never repented. He never prayed. He asked them to do something for him. It's not bad to ask people to pray for you, but you have to see in the context of what he was doing. He was dodging the bullet. He was not repenting. He was not sorry, apparently, he never prays, he never repents. His belief, his amazement, even his baptism was based upon impure motives, motives of unholy personal gain. Early Christian tradition, they deem him as a heretic if you read the early writings. True faith is a gift from God and rooted in a humble and desperate need for Jesus. Have you ever watched that show, The Antique Road Show, on television? It's on PBS. Interesting show. Uh, people bring their old stuff in to get assessed, and hopefully it's worth like $6 trillion. And they're like, yes, I'm rich. Um, in April of 2012, a woman brought this blue and gold. It was an ornate little egg, enamel egg. And she put it down, and, and the, the guy's taking a look to assess the value. She purchased the egg for $15,000, hoping that it was worth a lot more, that it was a Fabergé egg. Now, what on earth is a Fabergé egg, right? 
Well, Peter Carl Fabergé and his company created 50 jeweled eggs from 1885 to 1917, and only 42 of them have survived. Fabergé eggs can be worth millions of dollars. And the most famous ones were made for Russian Tsars as Easter gifts for their wives and their mothers. So the appraiser studied the woman's egg on the table and told her that the craftsmanship was quite good, but sadly it was a reproduction. The appraiser valued it between $3,000 and $4,000, thousands less than what she paid. And you're like, oh, why did I buy that? I wanted it to be worth millions. She was disappointed, but I thought she handled it pretty well. Things are not always what they appear to be to us. But God always assesses them as they actually are to him. People were amazed in verse 23. Not saved by faith. Their faith was counterfeit. John Calvin wrote about their brand of faith, the imposter's faith. Quote, their faith was absurd because it was not exclusively directed Because it was exclusively directed to the world and earthly things, it was also a cold belief and unaccompanied by the true feelings of the heart. For hypocrites assent to the gospel, not that they may devote themselves in obedience to Christ, nor that with sincere piety they may follow Christ when he calls them, but because they do not venture to reject entirely the truth which they have known and especially when they can find no reason for opposing it. For as they do not voluntarily or of their own accord make war with God, so when they perceive that his doctrine is opposed to their flesh and to their perverse desires, they are immediately offended, or at least withdraw from the faith which they had already embraced. End of quote. When they realize, oh, the truth has to change me, I don't like that. So I don't think it's for me. If you're honest with yourself, what is your faith really in and why? Is it cold and empty of emotion? Have you believed in Jesus because you love him and desire to obey him? This is something very, very personal to us all of us, something each of us must work through on our own. Honesty about our faith helps us realize where we actually are with God and where we need to be with God. You see, humble and honest evaluation of our faith is an open door for God to enter in the middle of that and to change some things around, to really strengthen us and build us, but we have to go there. We have to dig deep into what Man, what's our faith really like? Where are we at with God here? How, how spiritually mature are we? You know, in, in your morning grogginess, it's always really helpful to make sure that you grab the toothpaste and not the hydrocortisone cream. All right? You'll be in trouble quickly. All right? Study your faith honestly. Honestly, study it closely. Put it under the microscope. This is what God is calling you to do. Are you in the faith, Jerusalem church? Do you know Christ? Here are four practical diagnostic questions to help you assess your faith. I hope they're helpful to you. Do you hate your sin and realize it keeps you from maximum joy in God? 
Humble, teachable Christians actively identify and label sin in their lives and recognize that it keeps them from greater enjoyment, greater fulfillment in God. Followers of Jesus confront and struggle with sin because the Holy Spirit is producing in them an increasing distaste for sin. Now, if you just go on indulging and never testing and never really struggling, you just indulge your flesh. That's what you know to do. Well, then I submit to you humbly, you, probably, you don't have saving faith. Because though we don't have the distaste for sin as we should, God is growing that and producing that more and more as we mature in Him. That we actually hate it, we despise it, because we know it's getting in the way of our joy. Second question, do you hate your sin enough to kill it? If a lion attacks you, you don't pet it. You do everything that you can do to kill it. To kill it. Along with hating sin, followers of Jesus have a ferocious desire to kill sin in their lives. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Kill it with repentance. Kill it with faith. Starve your sin, full flesh, by avoiding whatever feeds it. Avoid it. Don't feed the flesh. Entertaining sin is like having dinner with Hannibal Lecter. It's not a good idea. All right. Some of you are like, Hannibal, what? All right. Third question. Do you love Jesus and realize he is your maximum joy? Real faith loves Jesus more than what Jesus gives. What makes the good news good is Jesus. He is the good of the good news. Saving faith sees Jesus as more than everything else. Last question. Do you love Jesus enough to obey him? Bob Goff wrote a book entitled Love Does. And one of Bob's quotes is, love doesn't just think about it. Love doesn't just plan it. Love does it. Love doesn't just think about it. Love doesn't just plan it. Love does it. Loving Jesus is not just thinking fond thoughts about Jesus. It's not planning to follow him at now or sometime in the future. I'll get around to following Jesus and taking my faith seriously. Loving Jesus translates into following Jesus, obeying Jesus. Jesus made this principle very, very clear. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, if you take me seriously, then obedience will be serious to you. You will. If you won't, you don't love me. You don't have saving faith. You see, if God planted faith in you, if he put love in you, then by his grace, you will live in obedience. Obeying Jesus is impossible if you don't love him. He flat out won't be worth it. You'll be bored no, not today. And you just won't obey him because he's not important enough to you to obey. And that's how it works. But when you love him, when you cherish him, when he is most valuable to you, it will translate into allegiance, complete submission, obedience. God pours his love into us first and then we love him and love does. Love does. Does your life confirm that your faith is real? Does your life confirm that your faith is real? That's really the point that I'm driving at here. All right? God did an amazing thing in my life this weekend, and I'll close with this. I hope it's a good, we're running out of time, but I think this is interesting. Hopefully you will be encouraged by it. 
going to Detroit, and I got from Harrisburg to Philly a flight on one of those wicked machines. And uh, I've shared with you before that I'm not very good at evangelism. I'm just not. I have not had great success. I've had fear. I have not loved people enough to do it. I just have problems with that. Loving other people and enough to be bold to share Jesus Christ with them. But I believe that if we're willing, that God will give us the strength to do it. If we're willing. And if we're ready to do it. And so I have asked God for opportunities to share the gospel, to share my faith. And that he would also give me the courage and faithfulness to follow through on it and be faithful. As I'm boarding the plane in Philly, heading to Detroit, I look ahead and I saw a young man in line as we're boarding the plane. And uh, he had a backpack, and on his backpack was the name Roy. And below that was uh, embroidered a Jewish, the Star of David, and some writings that was, was about Israel. And um, so he was 18 years old. And um, I boarded the plane, and guess who's sitting beside me? Roy is. Roy is. He is a young Israeli man. Uh, from Montreal, who's fluent in English, French, and Hebrew. Guess what I study? Hebrew. I did French too, but oh, that, was, that didn't go well. Um, the entire flight from Philly to Detroit, Roy and I talked about Judaism and Christianity. And God opened the door for me to explain within his viewpoint of his faith how Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. How Jesus is the promised Messiah that Judaism was anticipating. We were talking about feasts. We were talking about tradition. We were just, I mean, it was one of these conversations where we're like, this kid is cool. And I just like talking with him. He's so open. We disagree. We're worlds apart. But yet, we're sitting on a plane here having an engaging conversation with each other. We're both locked in on it. I mean, and it wasn't angry. It wasn't out of control. It just was a great conversation with someone. The Holy Spirit just came over me to give me this peace to present Jesus faithfully within his worldview. And uh, it was so fascinating. And we even discussed the Passover feast of how Jesus is the lamb. I wasn't that animated. I wasn't like, Jesus is the lamb. But, you know, it it just was great. And how he fulfilled all these things. I was like marking out the blood on the doorpost. And that was pointing towards Jesus. We were on the cross and he died for your sins. And so we're just going through the whole thing. Here's an intelligent young man, a good thinker, someone open to dialogue with faith void of a relationship with Jesus. His faith is rooted deeply in the Old Testament, in a fear of God, in morality, in many similar things to Jonathan and my worldview. And some might say that Roy is close, but he is infinitely far because he doesn't know Christ. Close is not saving faith. Faith without joy in Jesus is no faith at all. And I found out that though Roy believes in God, his entire system is built upon his own morality and ability to live a good enough life. And that's sad because living under that burden to just be something or to do more is not the gospel. That's not my worldview. I can't do it. 
And it frustrates me to try sometimes. I just fall short every day, falling short. But my king doesn't. The Messiah doesn't. And so he's trapped inside of this worldview that is built upon him and not Christ. I liked this guy. I liked talking with him. And I challenged him to think about what I said. And I hope that he does. And I've prayed for him. I hope the Holy Spirit works him and and converts the kid. He's smart. I mean, faith without joy in Jesus is no faith at all. On the way home, it's like I was on an evangelistic crusade. This guy beside me starts talking on the way home. He's a successful businessman from York. And as we keep going, I bring up the question because he knows I'm a pastor. I say, where are you with your faith? And he says, I'm Catholic. And we start talking about different things. And I'm like, do you you buy all that? And he's like, "Uh," so I could tell, all right, this guy is just not on, he, he doesn't know. He just doesn't know. And so we started to, and I, I started to show some differences and talked about justification by faith that it's not about what we do, but it's what Jesus did. And so he's listening, and, and I got to talk about Christ again. I am not good at this. This is not. I'm, so some might say he was close, but he's so far if he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. Faith without joy in Jesus is no faith at all. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care what label you put on it. No matter what, if you don't know Jesus, if he's not the center of your joy and the center of your system and the center of your life, you don't have saving faith. So as your pastor, I appeal to you to study your faith closely, to make sure that you're in, to make sure that you know him. And that you're not just living a lie, you're not just living a tradition, but you actually can test it with the gospel and see, I'm in. I'm in because Jesus, I trust him and it's his righteousness and not my own. And so uh, as best as I can discern, I'm in. And then rest on that and just totally enjoy it. Totally be free. Totally just bask in the glory of Jesus Christ because you've done the hard work to test yourself The most dangerous thing you can do is sit here in these pews week after week and never think a lick about how deep your faith really goes. And I don't mean to suggest to you in any way at all that when you look and study your faith, you somehow are are casting doubt in your mind to weaken your faith and to somehow say, I don't know if I'm in, I don't know if God loves me, I don't. And then you spiral into this self-doubt pit thing. That's That's not what I'm saying. Test it. Because if it's real, it stands up and God builds it and God strengthens it and God gives you the grace to pursue his glory, his will, his purposes for your life, your own joy. Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Jerusalem church, examine your faith. Examine it. Test it. See what God thinks about it. See what you think about it. Let's pray. God, I pray that we can run our faith through the gauntlet of your word and the gospel. I pray, God, that we don't get caught up in how good we are or how great our traditions are. That's not the gospel, God. None of us are good. And we know it far too well. Well, no, maybe not far too well. Maybe not well enough. God, we have failed you, we've fallen short of your glory, and yet your gospel is right there to pick us up, dust us off, and say you are a child of the king. 
You have an older brother who loves you and defends you and intercedes for you before the throne of God. And I pray, God, that our confidence can be in Christ, that when we do put our faith under the microscope, that we see that Jesus is there right in the middle of our faith, and that validates the whole thing. And then we can go with boldness and confidence, live without guilt or regret, but know that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and so give us that confidence. I I pray that this message doesn't beat Jerusalem church down, but inspires it and builds it. God, may your Holy Spirit be at work. If someone is here today that in their evaluation of their faith, they recognize, I don't have it. I'm living a lie. I pray beyond anything else, they will fall in humility before you and admit that and that they will come to the cross and find their greatest joy in you. God, that your spirit would be at work in this church and in this community and in our nation to bring us revival, to bring us awakening. And God, we are confident in you and the power of your son. In his name we pray, amen.